last week we saw, or the last time we got together anyway, we saw the fall of Jerusalem and all the people that that were left were taken as captives to Babylon or they fled to Egypt. We, you know, just by way of taking stock, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians 136 years earlier. And those people of those 10 tribes or so, they have been scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire for over 100 years. The southern kingdom of Judah hung together for quite a while, but it finally fell last week after a series of attacks that culminated in the siege and the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BCE. They were, they were uh, conquered by the Babylonians. So the people of Judah were mostly ca- carried off in, in big groups. They were carried off in waves to Babylon. So once they got to Babylon, they formed kind of a community of exiles and began to integrate into the Babylonian culture. So altogether, this combined scattering of both Israel and Judah is called the diaspora. You want to remember that word, the diaspora. It means the scattering. And from now on, there is no more divided kingdom. All of God's people are referred to collectively as Israel from here on out. Every once in a while, there will be a reference back to the old Judah or old Israel, uh, northern Israel, but you'll know from the context that it's a memory From now on, in the Hebrew Bible, the people in the diaspora are referred to collectively as Israel. And God knows they have suffered enough. They have been humbled. All those who lied have been revealed. All those who hoarded ill-gotten gains are now destitute. All those who denied justice are themselves enslaved. They get it. Their idols and their allies have failed them completely. They know that God is their only strength. God is the one who truly loves them. And God wants them back. God is like the father of the prodigal son. He's watching the horizon for them to come home to him. And so the books of these latter prophets that we're looking at, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, that span the time of the exile are filled with chapter upon chapter of comfort and hope. Isaiah's chapters of comfort are often called the book of comfort and can be found beginning in Isaiah chapter 40 all the way through the end of the book. The book of comfort begins with these famous words, comfort ye my people, saith your God. I can't even read these words without hearing the dramatic opening lines of Handel's Messiah. Such powerful words. And in fact, Handel borrowed a great deal of his text from the book of comfort in Isaiah. Looking at the passages Handel borrowed is a fun place to start. I'll paraphrase them into modern English, but if you have ever sung the Messiah, you will recognize these. From Isaiah 40, comfort my people, speak comfort to Jerusalem. 
Tell her that her warfare is over. Her iniquities are pardoned. A voice cries out, prepare the way for the Lord. Make a straight highway for God in the desert. Every valley will be raised and every mountain made low. Rough places will be made smooth and rugged places plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Everyone, all people shall see the glory together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Stand on a high mountain and shout the good news. Behold your God. He will tend his flocks like a shepherd, gathering the lambs in his arms and carrying them close to his heart. Get up, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Gentiles will be drawn to your light and kings to your rising. And then in a little bit that Handel left out, foreigners will rebuild your walls. Now Handel did a mashup of a bunch more prophecies, but these are the ones he used from Isaiah's Book of Comfort. Isaiah, however, had much more to say. There is this wonderful promise to Jerusalem in chapter 60. There will be no more violence in your land. Your walls will be called salvation and your gates will be called praise. The sun and moon will not be your light anymore for the Lord your God will be your light and your glory. All your people will be righteous and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted. Now notice that last bit. The people are the shoot God planted. Yet we've read so much already about a quote righteous branch in Isaiah. That is the Messiah, the anointed one descended from David. It's all this shoot and plant and branch language around the Messiah. So if the people are the, are, are the shoot and the Messiah is the shoot, then clearly the Messiah is an integral part of all of the people. And there are very strong echoes of this in the New Testament. When Jesus teaches us, I am the vine and you are the branches. This is what he's talking about. Chapter 60 ends with this startling statement. I am the Lord. And when this time comes, I will do this swiftly. Now, this tracks with the prophecies we've covered already, as well as a few we'll get to soon. There is a coming day of the Lord. It's called that. That is a sudden and cataclysmic event that forever changes the world. And we find out as we go along that it is the day of the second coming of Christ. And that's the end of chapter 60. Look how chapter 61 begins. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Those words in yellow, anointed me, are the words in Hebrew for the Messiah. In Hebrew, the word for anointed is literally the word 
Messiah, the word we've transliterated as Messiah. The Messiah is the anointed one to come. And what is mind-blowing is that these are the very words Jesus chose to read when he began his ministry in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bandage the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for those held captive and to release prisoners from the darkness, to proclaim the time of the Lord's goodwill. And that's where Jesus stops. He rolls up the scroll and says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) That's pretty pointed. Jesus claims directly in his home synagogue at the beginning of his ministry that the Lord has anointed him, meaning he is the Messiah sent to proclaim the time of the Lord's goodwill. But Jesus stopped in mid-sentence. The passage in Isaiah actually continues like this. I have come to proclaim the time of the Lord's goodwill and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort everyone who grieves and bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the clothing of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That sounds beautiful, except for that one bit in the middle. Why is the day of vengeance of our God stuck in here? Well, let's think about that for a second. We all know that God is not a hateful, vengeful God. And the word here is definitely the Hebrew word for vengeance. So I used a backpack tool on it. I looked to see how it's used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. Turns out, It's used 16 times in the Hebrew Bible, and every time it has to do with wiping out evil. And in several cases, it's closely associated with atonement. Here are some examples. Deuteronomy 32.43 says, Rejoice, O nations, for God will avenge the blood of his servants and will atone for his land and his people. So notice here that the time of vengeance is to be a time of rejoicing. In the Hebrew Bible, vengeance is a concept very closely related to judgment and justice, which we've already learned are words associated with God setting things right. These next verses reinforce that connection. Isaiah 63, 4, God is speaking, saying, The day of vengeance was in my heart, and my time of redemption has come. So vengeance is the aspect of justice that speaks to repayment, to reparations. I love the image of those old glass Coke bottles that we used to turn in for redemption. We could redeem them for money. God is coming to redeem his people, to restore them to their place. Here's another one, Isaiah 35, 4. Take courage, fear not. 
Your God will come with vengeance and repayment will come and he will liberate you. Again, the Lord is coming to redeem his people from their oppressors. The oppressors will be repaid in full for their actions and God's people will be liberated. Vengeance, you see, is always directed at the oppressor, at evil. And this is why vengeance belongs to the Lord and not to us. The evil that has been done was directed at the Lord. What was at its root was the people's arrogance, their greed for power and violence to try to topple the Lord and replace him with themselves. We've seen this over and over and over. The sin was against the Lord. We, God's people, are suffering the collateral damage from those who are pursuing evil against the Lord. I mean, it has repercussions for the nation, obviously. And at the appointed time, the Lord will move his people to safety and will heal us, while at the same time eradicating the pride and greed and violence that has caused all the injustices and inflicted all our wounds. And to the extent we need it, as we know we all do, the Lord's refining fire is always available available to us. It is available to us now. We can refuse to enter the cycle of pride and greed and violence. Only the Lord can withstand that and break it forever. Let us instead enter into the waiting arms of the Lord and be comforted. Let us us take full advantage of the refining fire that allows us to release any pride or greed or violence in our hearts. The refining fire that allows us to draw nearer, to open wider, and to understand more. Let us leave the vengeance and the repayment to God. And that is why this phrase about vengeance is stuck right in the middle of this great passage of comfort in Isaiah 61. It belongs there. The burden of vengeance has been lifted from our shoulders. God himself will set everything right. In Isaiah 62, the Lord says to Jerusalem, your name will no longer be forsaken or desolate, but you will be named. My delight is in her. Your land will be named married. Your builder will marry you. And as a groom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Now, this is a super important shift in relationship. Up until now, the Lord has seen himself as married to Israel, the whole thing. We've seen tons of agony on God's part over their unfaithfulness, right? But now the Lord will marry Jerusalem. 
This whole passage in Isaiah 62 starts by specifying that the she in the chapter is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is to be God's bride now. The rest of the land is included in the marriage, kind of like the train of the bride, you know, and certainly the Lord intends that all the people be included, but Jerusalem specifically is the bride. In fact, the chapter ends by saying, say to daughter Zion, which is another term for Jerusalem, to look up, your rescuer is coming. His reward and his payment is with him. The people will be called the holy people who have been redeemed. And you, Jerusalem, will be called sought out, a city no longer forsaken. There's no possible way I can do justice to all the comfort that is in Isaiah. So I'm focusing on the more structural things. I'm pointing out the landmarks on the map that will guide us through the next part of our ramble together. The first is Jerusalem as the new bride. The second one we already know. God will establish a new king from the line of David who will reign forever. In the prophecies, this one is called the anointed one, the Hebrew word for Messiah. I've been pointing out messianic prophecies as we've gone along already. And of course, there's probably no better example of this than the one Handel picked from Isaiah 9, 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his rule and of peace. The English word for increase here is inadequate to express what is behind this word. The ancient hieroglyph is is a head with a tent, which means head of a family. It is a generational multiplication of family that is in view here. It is a wonderful word of fruitfulness. And in this phrase, it means there will be no end to the increase of the Messiah's family and of peace. He will reign on David's throne with justice and righteousness forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this, meaning that God will enthusiastically and with great passion make this happen. During the reign of this king, things will be very different. This is a famous passage from Isaiah 65. Behold, look. I will create a new heaven and a new earth. You won't even remember the old ones anymore. There will be no weeping or crying in Jerusalem ever again. Jerusalem will be for delight and its people for joy. There will be no more infant death. Notice that there is still death in this this prophecy. But during this period of time, there will be no more infant death. Human lifespan will be like that of trees. And someone who dies at 100 will be thought to be a child. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Lions will eat straw and serpents dust. They will neither harm anyone nor destroy anything on all my holy Mount Zion.
So that's just a few examples of the second major landmark on our end times map. Isaiah is full of this stuff, and I hope you take time to read his whole book, especially the chapters from 40 through the end. But for now, let's move on to Ezekiel, who is going to add some more landmarks to our end time map. Ezekiel's book of comfort is in chapters 34 through 48, except for chapter 35, which is the woe to Edom chapter. Chapter 34 is sort of a mixed bag. The Lord talks about how bad Israel's shepherds have been and how the Lord will now be their shepherd. But the Lord sees the fat sheep shoving the weak sheep and ruining their pasture and their water, and the Lord's not going to stand for this. The Lord says he will judge between one sheep and another. And then he says, I will give them one one shepherd, my servant David. I will be their God, and David will be their prince. Clearly an end-time prophecy. And we know from our work in the other prophets that when God says David will be their prince, he means a man descended from the line of David, not a literal resurrection or reincarnation of the ancient David himself. Later in chapter 37, the Lord tells Ezekiel that David will be their king forever and the Lord will dwell with them forever. Now, it's not clear whether this means the Messiah will be king himself personally forever forever, or whether it means the Davidic line will never cease. It's also not clear from the prophecies whether only the Messiah is king or whether there is also a line of human Davidic princes or both. I personally sort of lean towards the both idea where Jesus reigns and where a Davidic line of kings reign over, over Israel. And I will try to point out why as we go along, but you can reasonably interpret this stuff any of these various ways. Chapter 36 gives us an interesting insight into what happens after the people of Israel are scattered in the diaspora. The Lord says, everywhere you went, you profaned my holy name because the other nations saw your disgrace and thought that's how I treat my people. But this is not how I want the other nations to understand me. So I will bring you back from the other nations and will restore you. But I want you to know I'm not doing it for your sake or because you're doing good things. But I will clean you up and give you a new heart and a new spirit. And then you will see just how detestable your practices have been. So notice here the Lord's continued concern for all the other nations. The Lord has a relationship with them that is important to him. I am cleaning you up and restoring you so you and the nations around you will understand who I am. Next, in chapter 37, is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Ezekiel has another vision. This time, the Holy Spirit brings him to a valley that is full of the bones of soldiers slain in battle. And the Lord says, what do you think, Ezekiel? Can these bones ever live again? 
And Ezekiel says, I have no idea, Lord, only you know that. And when the Lord prompts him, Ezekiel prophesies to the bones, saying, the Lord says, I will make life enter you. I will give you tendons and flesh and new skin, and then you will know that I am the Lord. And as he's prophesying in the vision, Ezekiel hears a dry rattling sound in the Bones start to come back together again, and tendons and flesh and skin begin to form. And the Lord says, prophesy, Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath, the spirit, and say, come spirit from the four winds and breathe into these slain bodies so they may live. And as he prophesies, the entire army of soldiers comes to life and stands up. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, these are my people, Israel, who have given up hope. Tell them I will open up their graves and bring them back to life, and I will settle them in their own land. Then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and it is done. So that's a pretty powerful resurrection prophecy. And it seems to say that this regathering um, is, is, is accompanied by resurrection. So just put that in, little feather in your cap and hang on to that. This is amazing stuff. The next chapters, 38 and 39, are some of the most argued about end time prophecies in the Bible. We're going to take them at face value for the moment, and then when we get to Revelation, we'll, we'll circle back to them. Right now, there are a couple of major puzzle pieces that we have nowhere to put. The prophecies center on the area we now call Turkey. The Lord says, I am against you, Gog, of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will Take captive you and all your armies and all the armies with you from Persia and Cush and your allies from the far north. So if you can read the fine print there, you can see um, Magog and Meshach and Tubal there in the little yellow box. And apparently they're going to lead pretty much a worldwide um, vast army uh, that that the Lord is unhappy with because he mentions Persia there in the east, Cush down south of Egypt, and allies from the far north. So that's weird, right? We've never even heard of the nations of Magog and Meshach and Tubal before. They haven't been players at all in the drama in Israel. I mean, they're not, we haven't heard anything about them. So it turns out their role is, quote, many days, in quote, in the future. The Lord says, in years to come, you will invade a land that is peaceful, a land whose people have been gathered back from the nations where they were scattered. Aha, that helps. Now we know this is an end time prophecy and that this group of nations will invade Israel after they've been gathered back from the diaspora. The Lord continues, you and many nations from the far north will advance against my people Israel. You will be a vast 
horde, a mighty army, but you will not prevail. My fierce anger will be aroused against you, and I will command a great earthquake. Mountains will fall down, and all those walking the face of the earth will tremble in fear. I will pour down torrents of hailstones and burning sulfur on you. I will display my greatness and my holiness, and all the nations will know that I am the Lord. There's that phrase of emphasis again, and also the concern for all the other nations. The Lord is not going to mess around anymore. Once God's people are gathered back to Israel and they are governed by a descendant of David, God is not going to tolerate any more war or destruction against them. None. And this is a big reason I do not see the current day Israel as fulfilling these regathering prophecies. It doesn't have all these characteristics of peace, of the nations of the world streaming to Zion to worship the Lord. We've, we've read some of those. And of the Lord absolutely and utterly squashing all enemy attacks. The current nation of Israel just doesn't fit the prophecies, in my humble opinion. I think. Humans forced this recreation of Israel, took the land from the Palestinians, and called it fulfillment of God's words. No wonder they have not lived in peace for a minute since. That said, I fully and completely support carving out a place for the nation of Israel to exist. All I'm saying is that in doing so, we did not fulfill these old prophecies at least as I understand them. According to Ezekiel, the armies from the north will make it all the way down to Israel before the Lord destroys them. And afterwards, the piles of the weapons of war will be so great that the people of Israel will not need to gather fuel. And in the Bible, it says wood for fuel um, for seven years. They will plunder the remains of the vast armies that came against them. In fact, the detritus of those armies will be so huge that it will block the roads. It will take seven months for the Israelites to move all of the bodies out of the way and bury them. The last chapters of Ezekiel are devoted to visions of the restoration of Israel and specifically Jerusalem and the temple. The visions are extremely detailed down to exact measurements. Um, So we'll just hit the highlights here. On April 28th, 573 BCE, Ezekiel has a vision in which the Lord takes him high up on a mountain overlooking a temple, but it doesn't quite look like the old temple that Ezekiel is familiar with. And there on the mountain, he sees a man shining like bronze who has measuring tools in his hands. And the man says to him, pay attention, Ezekiel, and tell the people of Israel everything I show you. And the shining man proceeds to make detailed measurements of every single wall and space and fixture in this new temple. But curiously, he only measures lengths and widths and depths but no heights. The only heights mentioned are of 
the furnishings, not the buildings or the walls. It's a huge complex with several outbuildings and many rooms. It has an inner courtyard and an out outer courtyard and gates to the north and the south and the east for both the inner and the outer areas, just like the old temple used to have. The old temple, however, had a rectangular footprint that would fit inside an American football field with about 30 yards to spare. Ezekiel's temple footprint is square not rectangular, and it's about 250 yards on each side, two and a half times the length of a football field. It's much, much larger than the old temple, and it has never been built to this very day. All the temples up to our modern times are much smaller than the one Ezekiel sees. Inside the temple building itself, there are two rooms as usual. Most Bible translations called the large room the nave of the temple. The smaller room is still called the Holy of Holies. Always before in the older temples, the Holy of Holies is where the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, would be placed, right? But in Ezekiel's temple, nothing is put in the Holy of Holies. And in the nave, there's only a simple wooden table, which is called an altar. It is for the bread of the presence of God, similar to the table in the old temple versions, but there's no lampstand or altar of incense like there were in the old temple. Now, we're get, not going to dive into thinking about what all this symbolism might mean. That would be for a class that focuses solely on the book of Ezekiel. So let's move on with our tour. Next, the shining man shows Ezekiel the priest's quarters and their duties. At the large altar in the inner courtyard of the temple, the priests will make burnt offerings. They will accept grain offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings of Israel and will eat the portions allowed. They must wear clothing reserved solely for their priestly duties and must not wear this clothing anywhere else. And the priests cannot be just anyone from the line of Aaron. They have to be from the family of Zadok, whom you may remember was a warrior priest, one of the mighty fighting men of David. Zadok, in fact, was the priest who anointed Solomon as king. The priests of Zadok apparently remained true to the end and guarded the temple during the last dark days. These priests, the descendants of Zadok, are also to be the judges in Israel. The Levites, who apparently went astray in those last years of Israel, are demoted, but are still given some duties. The new prince from the line of David is allowed to be in certain spaces of the temple area and is given particular offerings to provide. The restrictions on his movements and his specific role are a big reason I don't think this new Davidic prince is Jesus. I think Jesus has a bigger, more, more worldwide kingly role than the Davidic priest who would be operating in this, in this temple. But the presence of the Davidic prince tells us this temple is an end-time temple. That prince only shows up in end-time prophecies.
The entire temple complex is surrounded by a gigantic wall. The wall is a mile long on each side. Look at the picture. Do you see that little square right in the middle? That's the temple itself, the one that we've been talking about, the one that's two and a half football fields square. So you can see the scale of this wall. And obviously none of this would fit on the existing Temple Mount in Jerusalem. If this is meant to be a literal physical temple, it cannot exist until after the geography of Jerusalem is changed on the day of the Lord. And that brings up an interesting question. Is this vision of Ezekiel's a spiritual reality? Or is it meant to be a physical reality? There is no definitive answer in scripture. I tend to lean towards a physical reality, partly because of the earthly, you know, sorts of measurements and partly because of the animal sacrifices and partly because of what God says in Ezekiel 43.7. This is the NRSV translation. God says, mortal, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet, where I will reside among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings. Now that all sounds pretty literal and physical to me. And the reference to kings kind of feeds into how I'm viewing these Davidic princes that, you know, would, I think sounds like will govern um, Israel as a nation. But it's this verse is very much God with us in our humanity. But there's forever language here, just like, you know, we've heard from Daniel, somehow God is going to work this all out. So he can be with his people in a literal way forever. But if we take a peek at the end of the story in Revelation, the end time vision of John, John tells us he doesn't see a temple in the new Jerusalem because it isn't needed. Because God and the lamb, who is Jesus, are its temple. So what do we do with these contradictions? Is John's vision the spiritual one and Ezekiel's the physical one? Who knows? We can choose to simply hold them loosely and let them be contradictions. That is perfectly acceptable. But if you're the kind of person who needs all the pieces to match up and fit exactly together, the only, if for you, the only place Ezekiel's temple will fit is after the day of the Lord. Um, when the geography changes, the mountains are leveled, Mount Zion is, is different somehow. Um, when that happens during the second coming of Christ, uh, and only Mount Zion is left. But it has to be before the very end when, when the new Jerusalem, the one that doesn't have a temple, comes down out of heaven, if you're viewing that, you know, physically and literally. So that would put Ezekiel's temple in the millennial kingdom the thousand years when Christ reigns on earth after his second coming. So if you want to take it this literally, this is how to do it. And if all of this makes your eyes roll around in your head, don't worry about it. All we need to know is enough to recognize it when it happens, whether it's spiritual only or whether it also happens in the physical world. 
The other big difference is that the tribal boundaries will not look anything at all like they did historically. Instead, the tribes are allotted land in equal portions with a big strip across the middle for Jerusalem and the temple and for the priests to live on. There will be land for the Davidic prince in narrow strips to the east and west of the sacred district. My strips are not geographically accurate, but you get the idea. There are two more huge, amazing parts of Ezekiel's vision. We're almost done today. One is that water is coming out from under the eastern side of the temple. As it runs from the south side of the altar, it's just a trickle. But as Ezekiel and the shining man wade in the water, following it out of the temple precincts, the water gets deeper and deeper. It eventually becomes a river that no one can cross. The man tells Ezekiel that the river flows all the way down to the Dead Sea. And where it empties there, the salt of the Dead Sea becomes fresh and all sorts of fish will live there and fishermen will fish there at the mouth. It doesn't make the whole Dead Sea fresh, but just at the mouth where it, where it empties in. And all sorts of fruit trees will grow on both sides of the river. Their leaves will never wither or fall. And every month, the trees will bear fruit because the water they drink comes from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be used for food and their leaves for healing. And that is pretty wonderful. But Ezekiel sees something even more wonderful. Ezekiel sees the glory of the God of Israel re-enter the temple precincts from the east. The glory of the Lord comes back. And it looks exactly as it looked the other times he's seen it. The sound is the sound of the carabine, of those of rushing waters. Um, the radiance is so overwhelming that Ezekiel falls face down. But the Holy Spirit lifts him up and he watches as the glory enters the inner courtyard and then fills the temple. And Ezekiel hears a voice say, son of man, this is my throne. This is where I place my feet. This is where I will dwell forever here among my people, Israel. Wow. Now we know why there is no Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of Ezekiel's temple. There is no need for a man-made replica of the mercy seat because this becomes the actual mercy seat of Yahweh. What a vision. We'll leave both Ezekiel and Isaiah today, but during our breakout session, we've got one final chapter in Isaiah to look at. It is Isaiah chapter 53. So pull out your study guides and I'll see you in 15 minutes. I was having trouble with, I guess it was question three, um, when you were talking about substituting in Jerusalem for, okay. The verses use, the text uses he, him pronouns. Yep. Now, being involved with the LBGTQ community, I notice pronouns. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, Gail. None of us could remember prior to this 
any of the texts ever referring to the nation of Israel with he, him pronouns. Oh, no, it's all it, it's frequently referred to as he, him pronouns. For one thing, Israel, the man was a man. Right. Isaac, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, and, well, when, and whenever he refers- does refer to Israel um, in the masculine. Okay. Um, where we see Israel referred to in the feminine is when God is speaking in a um, marriage relational kind of context. Okay. So you and you really with, with uh, um, pronouns in the Hebrew Bible, you cannot get let yourself get tangled in the weeds there. That's true. Because it is a language like Spanish, where actual words have. A, a gender associated with it. I see Erica laughing. <laughs> so, so you, you really can't go there, you know? Um, okay. And, and uh, so you, you have, we have to take Israel in this sense in, in the same way that we take God as encompassing both male and female from a gender point of, point of view. Okay. And it flops back and forth, depending on the context. So Jesus, in the, the first thing that he, you know, and I, throughout this, I'm trying to break up places that may have become calcified in your thinking. I'm not trying to shake your faith. I'm not saying Jesus isn't who Jesus is. None of that. Okay. I'm just taking a little meat pounder to some of the places um, and, and saying you, it might be fruitful to break up some of this ground here. For one thing, it helps you understand, it helps us understand why our Jewish siblings read the scripture in the way they read it. We as Christians are taught, well, they're just clearly not paying attention. Jesus is the Messiah. It says so in black and white. You know what's wrong with them? And okay, question, question related to that. I went to a Christian school and we had lots of people that visited through and um, we had a speaker who came through who was talking about sharing with, he was from International Board of Jewish Missions and he was talking about an occasion where he was speaking with a Jewish man. And so he started to read him the chapters, the, the text that we were discussing Isaiah 53 56 all those and as he was reading it the man got angry and said we don't believe Jesus is the Messiah stop talking about it he was reading Isaiah Mm -hmm. (laughs) he was reading Isaiah he was not reading about Jesus he was reading Isaiah and this Jewish man recognized what he was reading to be Jesus now no he recognized that Christians see it as Jesus he has been attacked before in that and that's what I'm getting at is very well-educated reasonable people who happen to be Jews too certainly would read this substituting Israel here rather than Jesus. That, that was another it. question we had. We had lots of questions. Yeah, we, <laughs> how yeah, do we, the actual Jewish people feel, you know, what, how do they interpret this? Yeah. Go ahead, Woody. Well, I, we, we really talked a lot about question three. Um, and and uh, 
So yeah, one of the questions we talked about was how would uh, Jews read that? And and uh, your suggestion your suggestion was reading or substituting Israel for him and his. And one thing that I thought of was it it seems like you have sometimes made a distinction between um, the people of Israel, the Israelites themselves, versus the nation of Israel. And if you if you read this sort of um, uh, figuratively substituting Israel for him and his, would you also read where it says we were the ones, it was our transgressions, our iniquities, that the our would be referring to in the, the individuals yes, and the him and his would be referring to the nation of Israel. Is that possible? Exactly. I think that's highly likely. Yes. Yes. Um, it's, well, and we're just all... talking of a way to interpret it. You know, I'm not right. saying this is the way. I'm not saying it's the only way. I'm just saying a way. Was that Julia? Yes. I was going to tell you, Julie asked me to speak because at some point, I had an enlightened thought, but it's gone now. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Ellen, do you remember what it was? Yeah, um, Joe here. Basically, she said that um, you, this is where you're referring to Jesus taking on our pain. Yes. And God allowing him what he most valued to suffer to show his love. For us yes i think it was something like that mm-hmm. there was so much in that yes. few questions does that sound right yeah, Scott and Rhonda? there were there were what what else bubbled up for y'all i'm i'm willing not to take them in in any particular order i just really wanted to get to the understanding um did y'all get to question four that briefly why don't we go on? Why don't we move forward to question four? Okay. And talk about question four. Um, be, and here's the quote or the paraphrase because of oppression and judgment, he was led away to be slaughtered and never opened his mouth. He was killed and was buried with the rich, those who were violent and wicked, even though he had never done any such thing. Yet it was the Lord at work in this. Even though the Lord was pleased to do this, to make his life a guilt offering. After this, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He will see his offspring and his days will be prolonged. Through knowledge of him, my righteous servant, which we saw in our servant work, could be Israel or an, an individual or the Messiah. My righteous servant will make many righteous meaning to justify them, or your Bible may say justify them. Therefore, his portion will be among the many. He makes the many righteous. His inheritance will be among the many. For he carried the sin of the many, and he interceded for them. So my question there is, what if this is a both and situation? What if we were are talking um, what if Israel in the singular is in view here, you know, um, as having been slaughtered and not being able to do anything about it and, um, but that the Lord was, was at work, um, and it was more than worth it to the Lord to destroy Israel as a nation if it meant 
Israel, the people, as Jude, as Woody was pointing out, finally understand. Um, and the nation and, and all the nations finally understand. Might this help us understand the reference to offspring and the prolonging of days, which seems a little weird when applied to Jesus? Mm-hmm. Gail, I think we touched on that mm-hmm. and we were talking about if if we apply Jesus here and who did he come for? Did he come for the nation of Israel or all nations? And my thought on it, which I offered up was, I think he came for Israel. And then later when the Holy Spirit comes to those that are believers, they take it to the other nations. Mm-hmm. But I think he was a fulfillment for the nation of Israel. That certainly seems to be where these prophecies point. Um, and when we read Jesus' story in the New Testament, we will get to a place where he is with a woman and um, she wants some of that healing for my daughter. And he says, I can't give it to you because I was sent to the nation of Israel. And she was not an Israelite. And she answered him and said, I still want it because even the dogs under the table get the scraps. So you're not off track here in how you're understanding this. This may indeed be how Jesus himself initially understood his ministry. I think we'll see in the New Testament that his understanding of his ministry morphs, changes, grows, and deepens um, as it moves forward. But, but um, if, if, and if Jesus is also in view here, and it was more than worth it to the Lord to let empire, you know, the powers that be, that's what I call the powers that be in that, in that case, the Romans, you know, and the religious leaders, let empire destroy him. If it meant, quote, the many would hear the good news and understand you know it's it's always from the beginning been about the people it's not been about the governments the nations the structures the you know those have been part of how the people are organized but god is about the people and when we see the word the phrase the many here in prophecy Put another feather in your cap to remember that that talk, that is a phrase meaning Israel. That's what's in view here. Clearly, that's what Isaiah has in view. And that it spreads from Israel to all nations, right? Which we see the culmination of in the New Testament. But right here in this part of history where we're focusing, it's about Israel, the people. And so my, my, the real question I wanted to ask you was that one at the bottom. So what was the whole point of Israel's destruction? Was God's purpose in destroying Israel to appease his own need for blood sacrifice, to atone for their sins? Or was it something else entirely? Well, it seems like based on 
the passages that we've been reading, it was really a reboot. It wasn't about um, punishment and appeasement. It was about a reset. That the people, the people needed to understand at a, a core, a visceral level that the path they had been on was leading to destruction, that that had led them to absolute destruction, slavery, you know, um, the diaspora. Um, and that they needed to go back to basics. They needed to start over in their understanding of Yahweh and their relationship to Yahweh. Sort of breaking the slave mentality that they had brought with them all the way from Egypt. Yeah. Um, Boy, that's profound. That was great. I love that, that reboot idea. And you know, and I want to ask a question there if I can. Who? Uh, that's Joellen. Let's hear from Joellen. I I asked this in our in our seminar too because what we read today is something that I have faced um, in Sunday school classes about. There's kind of the paradox in one of the things that we read about. I'm going to burn this with sulfur, and then you're going to see how great I am. <laughs> okay, so you know. I'm, and I'm, I guess I'm speaking from my kids who were raised Christian and two of my three have gone sideways. And their question is, why does there have to be destruction to be set right? Exactly. Why, why is, why, now as a class, you all probably have ideas on that. I'm just saying it's, it's a big you know, I think for people who struggle with this, that's a big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, Gail has often referenced the refining fire. Yeah. Right. And and yeah. you know the 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 brimstone that came down and destroyed Sodom um, was also a form of refinement. Um, and and I think maybe many of us coming from a, a version of Christianity that was very much about um, punishing the bad and rewarding the good, um, that we see this in a context of anger and punishment. We see those words where God talks about wrath and stuff like that. But if we look at it from a perspective of refinement, I mean, even when we get to the point where we're talking about hell, um, as opposed to it being, you know, eternal conscious torment, you know, forever and ever with no chance of escape. That's how a lot of us were, were raised or were, were educated in the faith. But if we look at it as a time of refinement, of burning away that which is holding us down and keeping us back and impairing our relationship to God and then leaving us with what will be able to fully connect with God. Then you can see the glory of God. I think you're right, Marlene. And what it makes me think of is 
How many times have we gone through a difficult situation in life? And when we get through it, we're like, yes, I made it. I covered that. I'm through it. And you look back on it at different times in your life and you go, wow, that was really hard. But I managed. Or you think it wasn't as bad as I remember going through it. Because going through it, not so good. But here's, here's, here's my question, and I'm going to, Marlene, go on that. But in essence, doesn't that mean that other per people are burning for my refinement? No, 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 no. Definitely not. Definitely not. Um, isn't that? Mm -mm. Now, we as a, there is a distinction between a nation and an individual, right? Okay. And, and the, the spirit refines us as individuals, right? However, when our leaders make national choices that are stupid or evil, we, the people, suffer consequences. Yes. That is not God being mean. It's just a consequence of being part of the nation, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and so we do share a collective identity. And we can suffer collectively. I can and do suffer from other evil that other people do. Yes. Okay. But when God enters the picture, God is in the business. Um, uh, as I pointed out in the, in the verses in the lesson of pulling, extracting his people into safety and, and, burning the evil out, the retribution, the vengeance, the repayment, whatever you want to call it, on the oppressors of his people. Now he's not going to let his people, and, and then he turns, God turns right around and says, but don't think I'm doing this because you're all great. <laughs> you know? Right. Oh, and, yeah. I, and I'm sorry if I'm You need a little stuff. attention here too, but God's yeah. not in the business of vengeance on his people. That's not ever what God's well, talking about. I'm sorry if I'm being a little dense here today, but as we read it and it says, you know, let, let's call it the refinement of Israel, the refinement of Israel for the benefit of everybody else. But that means. No, no, the refinement of Israel had a benefit for everybody else. Yes. Yes. Okay. But what was lost in the refinement? The evil. But its purpose was the refining of Israel, its purpose was not to benefit everyone else. That was a, like a side benefit, correct? Yeah, I think so. I think God's whole purpose in everything God does is to allow us all to draw closer. I think that when we go ahead, Dwitty. Sorry, when we talk about refinement, we have to be talking about individuals, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about refinement of Israel, we're really talking about refinement of the Israelites. That's what I was going to say. Because it boils down to individuals, right? Right. right. Not, not the nation. Yeah, the, because the nation is just a collection of individuals. But, but within that nation, there are individuals 
who perish in pulling out the evil. Correct. That is absolutely correct. But they're not like eternally burning in hell or anything. I want to say something. I said something a minute ago that I want to clarify. And that is that in the scripture, God does talk about refining the evil out of Israel, you know? And so I, in responding to Witty, I do agree with Witty that when God refines a nation, he refines the individuals in that nation, you know? I, I remember what I was going to say. It, it goes back to the aha I had way back early in this Bible study that my viewing of God and God's relation to humanity um, has come to be that, that God is a love and logic parent, that God allows us to make choices that can be harmful for us, but we need to accept that if we make those choices, we suffer the consequences of those choices. God's not going to protect us from the consequences of our bad choices, but God will always be there to love and receive and forgive and restore when we realize I really screwed up and come back. And with the punishment of Israel, that was like the ultimate love and logic consequence after hundreds of years of going the wrong way and God constantly trying to pull them back, but then let finally saying, okay, well, you know, you're going to suffer the consequences of the choices that you've made. And it wasn't so much, you know, some of the language might have been the understanding of the writers that this was God smiting, but that actually God was stepping back and pulling back protection and allowing Israel to suffer the consequences of their choices. As a form of refinement. Right. As a form of refinement. As a, yeah. With the end goal of everything we read today about the comfort and the, and the drawing back. And, and so my last question was probably the hardest one. So, so I, I think that what we're saying, you know, if I ask you, was God's purpose in destroying Israel to appease his own need for blood sacrifice to atone for their sins? I don't think so. <laughs> That's not what it sounds like. I, God, that just doesn't fit with anything God said anywhere in here right no and when god asked for sacrifice it was animals not people right, right. it was hearts and lives <laughs> hearts and not. lives god's purpose in destroying israel was to destroy the evil out from it to re to save the remnant that were hanging on by their fingernails that were about to be eradicated right it was was god showing up um, and, and so my final question today is, can this shed light on how we might understand Jesus' crucifixion? I guess as we're sitting here listening, I think that I have come on this dense thing that's very deep. I was raised, we're supposed to be fishers of men. And so in an essence, if the evil is cast out, I feel that it's a bit of a failure on my part because I wasn't able to cast my net. 
Does that make sense? I do. And I think that that is a, is some bad theology there. Um, I think that, that it, it is, it does come from a specific verse in the, in the new Testament, you know, but um, it's very much gotten tangled up in the weeds of original sin um, of believing that. Yeah. I, I, I just, I realize I'm carrying around guilt that may not be mine. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and that, that what part of what we're taking the meat pounder to here is, is trying to, to break up those places that those hardened shells of guilt and of um, doctrine of theology that tells us that God is out there wanting blood for sacrifice and punishing, you know, because that does not line up with the, with the testimony of the Hebrew Bible and the prophets that does that a a God with that heart is not the same God as Yahweh. All, all my life, I have been bound not by sin, but by the dogma that was shoved down my throat, that was taught to me as truth, that didn't make sense. But I was told I had to believe it on faith because that's what God wanted. And for all those years, those people were speaking for God, but they were not speaking God's truth. And finally being able to break free from that and truly be free by by allowing God to speak to me through his truth and not through the truths of tradition and dogma and the truths the way other people perceive them. I don't even take any everything that Gail says as truth because that's not what we're supposed to do we're supposed to search the spirits we're supposed to try the spirits we're supposed to look at it for ourselves and let the holy spirit speak to us and it's hard it is hard to do that when you have been conditioned through years and years and years and I like what Gail said today about um, breaking up the calcification. As a person who has arthritis, as a person who's had to have ankles and knees debrided, that really struck a chord with me. It can be uncomfortable, but I want to get back to something that Joe mentioned, the whole fishers of men thing. Um, because that is a great source of grief and feeling of failure. Um, if there's any le- evil left, if we haven't reached everybody for for Christ, we failed, you know. Um, and and I I want to speak to that for a bit because the people of the tender hearts are the ones that carry this grief the most. Um, and and I I just want to remind you that the end results belong to the Lord. Just like vengeance belongs to the Lord, just like the repayment or the, you know, setting things right 
setting things right belongs to God. God is responsible for the results. We are responsible for going forth. We are responsible for living with God authentically within our communities, within our families. We are responsible for speaking truth to power. We are responsible for speaking truth to lies. We are responsible for not paying attention to the plumb line of the Holy Spirit that resides within us that knows when somebody is not speaking love and healing and restoration. Because we know that what comes out of God's mouth is love and healing and restoration. Always. Always. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. We can carry on on Facebook. We can, and we should, and it's, this is the longest class ever, so we're going to call it a day, and love to you all, stay, stay warm if you're having in the ice storm like we are, and I love you all much, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank bye. You. bye.